We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, we're actually, uh, we're going to cover kind of the whole chapter, and we're not going to hit every single verse uh, because time will not allow for that. Uh, but I do want to uh, talk about and kind of frame uh, our, our message this morning with uh, this recurring theme that Paul seems to have uh, given the various kinds of situations that people find themselves in relationally. Uh, and the encouragement that he gives and that we're going to look at as guidance for ourselves is stay as you are. Stay as you are. Now, uh, how many of you know that's not something you hear at church very often, right? It's like, they always want me to change something. Uh, so don't worry. Uh, this doesn't mean that we are just like completely exempt from, from uh, experiencing the transforming work of God in our lives. In fact, that's the reason why many of us come together week after week after week. Uh, is to encourage one another in exactly that journey of seeing God transform us into the new people that he wants us to be. But um, it's very interesting that as Paul kind of tackles some of the, uh, the, the, the problems or just very, very poor ways of thinking that plagued the Corinthian church, uh, the advice that he seems to keep giving is stay as you are. Uh, in the middle of the chapter... Uh, there's a couple of verses there that I just want to use by way of introduction. Uh, speaking of stay as you are, Paul says in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. Okay, and we're going to talk about uh, a little bit what that means. But then in verse 19, Paul says this. He says, keeping God's commands is what matters. What we're going to see is that um, we are, as human beings, presented with a practically limitless number of scenarios uh, that we come to Christ in, that we come to faith in, right? Uh, if we were all to share our stories, those of us that have experienced this thing called salvation, uh, that experience, uh, although there may be some similarities uh, from person to person, there would also be just incredible diversity uh, in our stories. Uh, but what we're all kind of boiled down to is this idea that in following Christ, what we're looking to do is understand what is it that God wants for my life? What is it that God wants for our lives? And how do we find the strength and the power to actually live um, according to God's will for our lives? Uh, so what I hope to get from today uh, and you know, I recognize that, like, there may be some times where it feels like we're just a little bit in the weeds. Uh, I'm going to try to avoid that as much as possible. But what I really hope to get from today is um, that we all have this understanding that we shouldn't let desire, the desire that we have to maybe change a situation that we find ourselves in, that we let that desire lead us into disobedience against God's commands, Right? Um, there are all kinds of things about our lives that I imagine we'd like to change if we were given the ability to change them. And some of those things we can change. Some of those things are within our power to change. Some of those, of course, are not. But whether we find ourselves in a position where we can change something, don't let the desire to change that lead you into disobedience to God's commands. That's really kind of the overarching thing that I want to serve as a context for all that we discuss this morning. Um, I want to say that some of what we'll 
talk about will feel personal. Um, it'll perhaps for some, just again, depending on your experiences, like the life that you've walked or the life that you are walking, it might feel heavy. Um, it might feel very, very deeply personal. It might evoke emotions that you weren't exactly prepared to experience when you came into church this morning. And I just want to like kind of set the tone for everybody to feel free to feel and to sit with those emotions and to sit with maybe some of that discomfort if it happens to come. I want us all to understand this is a really, really important thing when we gather together in a public space like this and we do spiritual work that the truths that we're going to talk about are not intended to convey any kind of condemnation on anybody. Right? The last thing that we want is for somebody to come where we have gathered to experience God's presence and the work that God wants to do in our hearts and lives, which happens differently and at different paces for all of us. It, it doesn't look the same for me as it does for you. And the last thing we want is for somebody to take something as if those words are serving as condemnation. Condemnation for maybe um, a life that he or she has lived or that he or she is even presently living. This, uh, what we do here isn't about condemnation. But at the same time, we also understand, many of us understand, the last thing we want is to just remain as we are. When it comes to, when it comes to you know, ultimately discovering what God's will and plan and purpose is, what God's dreams are for our lives, and, and, and the reality that so many times we settle for something that is far, far less than what God dreams for us. We want to move from that to a place where we really fully embrace all of what it means to follow Jesus as our King and our Lord, uh, as participants and citizens in his dominion. Um, and so again, like the, uh, the overarching idea is we are, if you haven't already or if you're not right now, you will at some point. You'll find yourself in a situation um, that you wish would change. And I just want to encourage you to consider not letting the desire to change that move you into a place where you're disobeying God's will. Uh, some other things I want uh, to just, and, and we'll get into these, but I want to just kind of lay them out at the beginning here um, that I hope we get this morning is we need to stop idolizing marriage and also, at the same time, stop diminishing marriage. And we'll talk about that. Uh, we need to appreciate the beauty and the value of singleness. Uh, so we're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about singleness. One of the things we need to walk away from is a newfound appreciation for the beauty and the value of singleness. You know, since the emergence of Jesus' kingdom, um, marriage has, in fact, become an optional and freely chosen vocation. That is, marriage isn't necessarily for everyone. And we haven't caught up to that idea. We moderns who think we know it all. And so people who maybe aren't romantically attached or oftentimes treated like lepers and pariahs. Uh, but Paul's going to establish that um, singleness is it's at least as worthy of a calling as marriage uh, and might even, according to Paul, be preferable. Um, so anyway, we, we all come in, like I said, we all come in 
to this thing of living with Jesus and walking with Jesus from a variety of social conditions, um, from a variety of ways that we see ourselves or the way we perceive others see ourselves. Uh, some of us have maybe labels and categories that we feel like have sort of boxed us in or circumstances that, that, that just that seem to kind of like define um, the identity of who we are or who we understand ourselves to be. And, and so to this idea, uh, in the middle of the chapter here, Paul uses this very extreme example of a slave, a slave who has become a Christian. And while he affirms that if a slave has the opportunity to become free, he or she should go ahead and take advantage of that opportunity, um, he also says that in the meantime, that is, as a slave, Paul says this, were you called as a slave? In other words, did you come to Christ in the social condition of being a slave? Don't let it concern you, is what he says. Again, remember, the, the mantra again and again and again is remain as you are. And so Paul says to the slave, were you called to be a Christian as a slave? Don't let it concern you. In other words, you and I, if a slave could be expected to... Um, to to live a full and flourishing life with Jesus as his or her king, then you and I, regardless of what situation, socially speaking, we find ourselves in, it's possible everywhere for us to discover how we can both keep God's commands and live a life that is truly, truly flourishing. We need to throw off any concern for the status that, we're, that we've either attained or that we're trying to attain. Um, this world is just enamored with this kind of like upward progression of social status, of becoming more, of being seen as more. Uh, I, I, I used to love the sitcom King of Queens. And if you're familiar with King of Queens, one of the recurring themes was here you had this, um, uh, this driver, right, that drove this big box truck delivering packages like a UPS man, except he worked for IPS. Um, and a lot of times his wife was always trying to encourage him to take that next step up in the corporation, right? To, to uh, uh, as far as she was concerned, it wasn't good enough to just be a driver uh, all your life. But poor old Dougie, he was perfectly happy with just the... Uh, status he found himself in. He didn't want to, um, he didn't want to, to ruffle any feathers or make any ways. He just wanted to do his job. He wanted to go home. He wanted to enjoy his life. And so uh, I think there's a lesson in that for us that when it comes to climbing the social status ladder, we, as Christians, we need to just throw off any regard uh, for that because our status doesn't mean anything to God. Like the status that we so often use to assess value or prescribe value on people, like it doesn't mean anything to God. Like God's, God's not impressed by the president of a country, the king of a nation. Like, you know, like God doesn't get and go all um, goo-goo when he finds himself in the presence of a famous person, right? Like that, there's just... Status has no effect whatsoever on God. And so um, we all here, we might, we might consider ourselves, you know, as, as living somewhere 
among this, you know, kind of social status, or we have certain social identities that <clears throat> if we're not careful, we sometimes use to determine value, um, you know, for one person over another or one job over another. Um, but the point that we need to understand is that we're no better off if we are this or if we are that. Um, and so, so we have this series of encouragements that Paul's going to give us um, to think about the various situations we find ourselves in uh, where Paul's going to say, remain as you are. All right, let's tackle the first one. The first one, Paul speaks to those who are married with benefits. You like what I did there? First category of people, married with benefits. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, Paul says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again. Okay, um, did that sound strange to anybody? Uh, so Paul begins with a premise that they uh, wrote to Paul about, right? This this, what he quotes there is what they had come to believe, and that is, um, it is a spiritual good, uh, this translation says, for a man not to have sexual relations to a woman. Literally, it is, a, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's the premise. Um, what in the world could that possibly mean? Well, uh, these Corinthian super spiritual believers they held this belief that the body was meaningless and nothing, uh, including the things that were done in the body or done with the body. And so this logic led to two conclusions. There were anything but Christian and did not have any place in a faith community. The first was that our bodies don't contribute to our spirituality. Like if you were to um, understand the ideology that the Corinthian church was using to say that it is a spiritual good for husbands and wives not to engage in sexual relations with one another, um, that is ultimately derived from a low and degraded view of the body that, as I said, first of all, manifests with this idea that our bodies don't contribute to our spirituality. That is, spirituality, whatever that is, is experienced apart from the body. And so the point is to actually be more detached from this stupid body, right? Like that's the, the way you would look at your body is, well, this body is, it's stupid. It's just getting in the way of me actually experiencing a fuller dimension of spirituality. Um, so with that, something like sex, sex would be looked at as maybe dirty, um, as something to be ashamed of, 
or something that this worthless, stupid body needs that we're actually trying to free ourselves from. So can you see the logic, right? That even within the marriage relationship, uh, these people who are trying to reach for higher levels of spirituality and believe the body is getting in the way of that are also able to make the logical jump that something like sex, which belongs to the body, is worth abstaining from. Um, They would think that a marriage between two spiritually-minded people is no place to bring the dirty act of sex. And so not only do they have a low view of the body, but they also have a low view of sex itself. A second thing that would have sort of instructed this line of thinking is that the body... The human body has no dignity for itself. That is, this body, again, is rendered meaningless and unimportant when it comes to understanding who I am. The body can be removed from any sort of self-understanding or consciousness of oneself because, uh, and we talked about this a little last week, I right? This thing called I, the ego, the conscious me, I am not my body. And if I am not my body, then I can treat my body however I want. Sex is a physical thing that the body does or the body wants. And so um, I can have, again, like speaking in alignment with the way the Corinthian church was understanding all of this, I can have an unattached encounter with someone else, like a prostitute. Yes, that's really kind of the example that Paul is bringing into the forefront here. And I can have that encounter, and it's really no big deal because it doesn't really affect who I am, right? Like, When I solicit a prostitute, when I engage in that encounter, that is something my body does. It's not something that I do. And so it's not really a big deal. It doesn't really affect me. So um, you might have put two and two together. And I just want to confirm that, yes, it seems like um, the case might have been made that to abstain from sex in marriage was a spiritual good worth pursuing, And at the same time, seeking sexual gratification outside the marital act could also be presumed permissible, even an extreme act like soliciting the services of a prostitute, since such an act is little more than satisfying a natural biological urge like eating and drinking. Now, those two things, they might sound dumb to you, right? Like, even as I'm saying it, you're saying, wow, I can't believe Those idiots believed things like that. How foolish of them. But let me show you how we have brought the same kind of mindset into some of our own modern understanding of things like sex and the physical body. For one, I think it's fair to say that we have diminished sex as a whole person experience. When you think about the common idea and understanding of sex, Sex has very, very, very much been diminished as a whole person experience. It's largely seen as 
primarily a basic, natural, and bodily desire. We pretend to keep our soul involved by not completely detaching from emotion and romance and love and companionship, right? All of those inner desires that we have for all of those beautiful things that are also a part of a sexual relationship. But while we're pretending that, yeah, our souls are still invested in this thing, we, we sexualize everything and then sell it like candy. Like, if you don't believe me, just turn on the television for a couple minutes and tell me that we haven't overly sexualized everything. Like, sex is how you sell Doritos now, for crying out loud. I don't know if you ever knew that. I thought Doritos were good enough to sell on the merits of their flavor and yumminess. No, no. Apparently, you can sell more bags of chips with Doritos if you can throw in a little bit of eroticism. So what we've done is we've created these pathways to see that sex is something that doesn't require emotional attachment. And in fact... um, It is commonly thought and understood that emotional attachment can sometimes be viewed as a negative thing in the act of sex, right? That is, uh, we ought to free ourselves more and more from the emotional baggage of sex so that we can experience the largely physical ecstasy of sex. Sexual stimulation and climax creates endorphins, which you and I know makes you feel good. And so that makes it a good thing for you, or so the wisdom would give us. We pretend that the sexual act, an orgasm detached from a loving, committed relationship is something that the body does. And it doesn't affect the real you and me. And that's what I mean, that we have diminished sex as a whole person experience, this thing that is experienced and encountered and has an impact not only on our bodies, but also on our souls. We separate sex from babies. It's another way that we have diminished our understanding and view of sex. Uh, In our world, sex shouldn't be seen as primarily procreative, but first of all, recreational, right? We have this understanding that the first and most important aspect of the sexual encounter is for the benefit of our recreation. And so any and all methods of making sex more accessible and safe without curbing sexual activity are both morally permissible and even advisable. Um, Sex is removed from the exclusive context of a husband and wife where procreation is most often experienced as a gift and not a burden, right? When you don't have a husband and wife relationship, procreation is usually seen as much more of a burden than a gift. And so what we do is we try to curb away from experiencing the burden without having to curb the experience of recreational sex. Thirdly, we treat sexual gratification as an entitlement. Um, We treat the idea that as human beings, we are entitled to sexual gratification. That is a right that I possess. 
in fact, again, many would say that it is repressive and harmful to deny oneself from the experience of orgasm. Or at least no one should ever or could ever be expected to do so. And finally, we free ourselves from every kind of taboo. Now, uh, when we talk about things like taboo, sex taboo, things like that, a lot of good can come out of um, removing some of the taboos that often revolve around sex, right? That can be a very good thing because a negative attitude towards sex, as if it's dirty and shameful, like the Corinthian church had come to believe, that's a very unhealthy way of viewing sex. It goes against God's design of and blessing of the, the union that he provided within the sexual relationship. Uh, however, taboos can sometimes also have a positive effect uh, in society, right? Because they can, they can, taboos can curb just uh, regular acceptance of what should be considered perversions of the thing that is good. Um, I think we'd all probably agree, I hope, that it wouldn't be good for society to remove uh, the taboo of incest, for instance, right? Uh, we know that is still a taboo that exists, and I'm glad for that. I think that's a good taboo. Uh, or uh, we have seen the emergence, like in our lifetimes, we have seen the emergence of a sexual taboo, like sexual harassment or unwanted sexual advances perpetrated by people who are in positions of power, um, we see that as a good thing, right? Uh, sexual harassment might have been something that could have years ago just been laughed off as, ah, you know, people do what people do. Men will do what men will do. Uh, uh, unwanted sexual advances would have uh, oftentimes just be seen as a, the way of the world. That's a good taboo that we have brought into our society that says, no, there's no place in our society for those kinds of things. There have been regrettable taboo losses, I believe, on things like pornography, adultery, rampant promiscuity, and decency in general in the public eye. I mean, think about what our kids are exposed to, um, all kinds of sexual content, practically every direction they look. So, um, so that's, that's a lot of kind of what was going on in this ideology of the Corinthians. And so Paul is combating that. And he opposes their view of marriage, sex, and the body, um, first of all, by reminding us all that sex is good. <laughs> like, like Paul makes clear in these first few verses that sex has a point to it that goes beyond simple the making of a baby, right? That while procreation is a very, very important feature and purpose of the sexual relationship, it is not the only reason why sex exists. Sex is good, right? It can create new life, yes, but it can also do so much more, right? That, I, I, Paul would have held that there's something worthwhile in the marital act that benefits both the husband and the wife. God created sex, and sex is good. When he talks about marriage, he speaks of marriage in terms of mutuality, um, as you read these first few verses, you will find, if you look carefully enough, that the language that he uses to express this, it's full of equality. 
something you would not have expected to read in any other ancient document. And here Paul is just celebrating the equality between the man and the woman in their relationship. Um, He sees marriage as the, the union, the combining of two people in a one flesh union. Uh, and the kind of good sex that God intended, it's not purely driven by this physical, carnal urge, but instead, we are supposed to be intimately and emotionally involved and vulnerable. This is why we read in the creation story that Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed. I don't know if you know this, but usually when you have sex, you're naked, right? There's a symbol there of vulnerability, the kind of vulnerability that ought to exist between two such persons as have been united as one flesh. Sexual intimacy is designed for exactly this kind of relationship. And then Paul speaks of marriage in terms of duty and rights and deprivation. These are words that he uses in these first few verses to describe marriage. He does this in order to oppose the idea that spouses are attaining a more spiritual level because they abstain from sex, right? Again, that was the idea. We're not going to have sex. That's going to make us more spiritual. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I don't know if you know this, but you have a duty. You have rights. There's such a thing as depriving another person, right? And so he uses this, again, to combat the idea that sex is a bad thing within the marriage relationship. Now, This is a very important caveat that I want to make uh, because a text like this has undoubtedly been used to manipulate and coerce uh, an unwilling spouse to perform because uh, it was that person's duty and the other person's right. Uh, Historically, this would have uh, often manifested in husbands compelling their wives to have sex, even if the woman experienced things like extreme physical pain or emotional trauma or psychological distress. So let me just be clear in case anybody wants to take things like duty, rights, and deprivation out of context. It is never right under any circumstances to manipulate and coerce someone to do something they are not willing to do. A marriage license does not change that fact. If a married person is unwilling to or doesn't want to have sex, the other person needs to be very gracious and understanding, even though it can be painful for that person as well. What the couple needs to do is work to discover and work through the real cause for why such intimacy is not desired. Sex should always be a mutual expression of love between two people, not an exchange where one person is getting something and another person is giving something, right? Um, If you find yourself in a position where this is an issue and you need professional help, then get professional help. So Paul, again, he just, just to remind us, he's telling these who are living in this marriage relationship, remain as you are. Don't let your desires move you away from obedience to God's will for your lives. The second category of people he speaks to are the widows and the widowers. Verse 8, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn 
with desire. So this category of the unmarried and widows um, is generally understood to be speaking to widowers and widows. And Paul says to these people, it is a good thing for you to stay as you are. Now, what we should take from that is an understanding that that must mean it is wholly possible for a single person to flourish even in their single state. Right? If Paul said it is a good thing for you to remain as you are, then that must mean it is possible for a single person to flourish even in their single state. Um, if you were formerly married, there's advice here not to marry, but there's also no command against it. Right? Paul's not saying thou shalt not remarry. No, you're in fact free to get married. Paul is... Um, like a wise sage offering some advice. Um, you know, it's, but it means something for us today. You know, it's common uh, a lot of times for people who are not currently married uh, to feel like, you know, they've, they now have the luxury and the freedom to engage in sexual encounters and relationships since they're no longer bound to a marriage, right? Like what would have been prohibited while they were married to another person, the fact that they are no longer married allows them to be free to kind of expand the boundaries of their luxury and freedom. I hear all the time uh, people are in these situations where they choose not to marry uh, because of financial reasons or maybe because of a previous bad divorce. And these can be very, very real and hard and personal things uh, to work with or to work, you know, um, to understand, like, what do I do with this in my life if that happens to describe my situation? And we desperately need God's grace when we find ourselves kind of in the middle of all that. But we also need to hold tightly to the truth that keeping God's commands is what matters, Right? Paul says, keeping God's commands is what matters. I can make all kinds of excuses and justifications for why I choose to do this or to do that. I'm just going to remind us all, keeping God's commands is what matters. Number three, the third scenario that Paul speaks to is the challenging marriage. The challenging marriage. Here, Paul recognizes that there may be challenges within the marriage that will have one or both people wanting to terminate the marriage. And to that, Paul gives these words. He says, don't be rash in leaving your spouse. Don't be rash in making the decision to leave your spouse. Now, um, I would also remind us all that there are absolutely very legitimate reasons for a person to leave their spouse, to leave um, certain circumstances where they physically need to remove themselves from the presence of their spouse. And when those kinds of legitimate reasons present themselves, go. Like, go. Right? If we're talking about things like, you know, safety and harm, and, um, um, things like, uh, you know, injury um, and abuse, uh, whether it's physical or emotional or mental, there are all kinds of reasons why a person should leave a situation like that. And a person should never feel guilted into staying in that relationship because, well, that's what they're expected to do. 
right? That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, don't be rash in just simply having such contempt for the marriage relationship that you're willing to walk away, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, how do I obey God's commands if this is my situation, if this is where I find myself in a challenging marriage, how do I obey God's commands? Um, again, this can be very complicated. It can be very deeply personal. Um, and we can find ourselves becoming very fearful, right? Uh, and so I just want to tell you, like, you, know, you find yourself um, kind of on the bad end of a relationship that didn't go the way you had hoped it would go. And here you are kind of in this limbo state where there's desires in your heart, you know, to kind of move on to the next thing. I want to encourage you to just wait. Wait. Give yourself the benefit of time. Give yourself the benefit of oodles and oodles and oodles of time. Don't just rush into another romantic relationship. And don't presume that being single means being alone or that it's a lifelong sentence of loneliness, right? Isn't this what happens a lot of times? You know, a person uh, either in a marriage or in a relationship that is very, very much like a marriage uh, that went on for maybe a long time, and that relationship is dissolved, and here this person sits with all the broken pieces of their life and their dreams, um, and a lot of times is waiting for uh, their prince or their princess-to-be to come along and sort of rescue and help them bring those broken pieces back into full working order again. And I just want to encourage you, when you find yourself in that position, wait. Don't feel like the circumstances that you're in now mean this life sentence of loneliness. Now, the instructions that we find both Jesus giving and now Paul reiterating about staying as you are and not rushing into a remarriage kind of situation? Is that too harsh? Is that, um, is that too difficult a word for us to embrace in our day, given the very transitory nature of our marriages and our pseudo-marriage kinds of relationships? I'll tell you, it's a hard word. It's a very, very hard word. But we can't just get around it and ignore it. Again, like, we want to be full of grace and full of understanding and full of compassion and empathy. And again, none of this is said to bring condemnation on anybody or the, the experiences that you have. Listen, at the end of the day, your relationship with the Lord is your relationship with the Lord. But we just can't also skirt around or get around the idea of what God has intended for us. We can't treat divorce like it's this unforgivable sin but I think we also need to own where the church is at. We need to own where we are. And we need to grieve and repent on how we have both idolized marriage, right? We've made marriage the standard and go-to for every person and anybody that doesn't get married or looks like they've gone too long without being married or being with somebody else. There's something wrong with them. There's something weird about them, right? That's an idolatry of marriage and we've got to get away from that. We also need to stop diminishing marriage. And we need to start re-envisioning what marriage ought to be going forward. This is hard. It's hard because the church has been largely removed from marriage. Some of you got married in a church, right? But 
that act of having been married in the church and the person maybe that officiated that ceremony, they don't, they don't really, for most of us, they don't have any real influence over you. They don't really have any say-so in you. There's no, there's no real accountability, spiritually speaking, when it comes to your marriage in the modern church today. Like, that's just the reality of where we are. And so we have to, we have to take on ourselves more of an individual commitment to what is marriage for? What does marriage mean? And what does God want for me? What does it mean for me to be obedient to God's commands in the situation I find myself in? Because I'm responsible for me, and you're responsible for you. Um, the fourth category that Paul speaks to is the still kind of single. <laughs> the still kind of single. I say still kind of because um, the primary situation that he's speaking to is the betrothed. Um, some of your translations, you read down, I know we're not reading all these verses, but um, he says, to the virgins, I say. And, and this is generally understood to be this category of person that is betrothed, which is something we don't really have today. Uh, but think of it as something like super engagement, okay? Uh, we all know that if you get engaged, then there may have been the giving of a ring, uh, but there's no real legal binding way in which you are together. If you break up, it might be a harder breakup than before you were engaged, but it's still, um, you know, ultimately kind of the same as a people, person in a dating relationship. Well, in Paul's day, um, you had this sort of in-between category of the betrothed where there was actually a legal thing that occurred within the life of two people, even though they hadn't physically consummated the marriage. And so... Um, Obviously, if the Corinthian church was willing to get or trying to get married people to abstain from sex, certainly they would have been trying to get those that found themselves in this position of being betrothed to not consummate their marriage or go forward with the physical aspect of their marriage. And so, um, so Paul, he, in speaking to this, provides for us, like what I want for us to get from this is he has this very high view of singleness and a very high view of celibacy as a worthy vocation and calling. Um, we need to understand from this that living singly and abstaining from sexual relationships and encounters does not make for a lesser human life. That is really hard for us to imagine, right? Because again, we're so overly sexualized and sex has become such a front and center idol in our lives, and so much revolves around it, it's hard for us to imagine a life that is both sexless and also full. Like, how could that be? That can't be a thing. No, I'm here to tell you, it can be. It is a thing. Paul escalates singleness and celibacy to a calling that is as worthy as the calling of marriage. What we need to do is we need to resist our overly sexualized culture. Like we know it's all sex all the time. And so we've made an altar and we've uh, made an idol out of sex. We can't even imagine a person going an extended period of time without it. We need to embrace singleness and celibacy as a worthy calling. We need, like, in our conversations, in our, the way we see one another, in our, our understanding of, 
other human beings. We need to stop making marriage the normal prescription for people. We need to stop assuming that single equals lonely. You know, when we make marriage the normal prescription for people and we assume that singleness is loneliness, then singleness becomes like this disease to be cured. How do we set this person up, right? Obviously, they're alone, and so they must be lonely. Um, there's no imagination for us to consider how a single person can lead and live a flourishing life. And so this impacts people of all ages. Kids in school, are they're pressured to be in relationships so they aren't left to feel weird or undesirable. Uh, the young adult, maybe having started to live more on their own or getting toward the end of college, they start feeling pressure to lock down a relationship, right? This, if I don't find someone soon, then I'm never going to find someone. Uh, as adults get older, uh, well-meaning people often offer encouragement. Um, again, just assuming that someone should get married, right? You'll find someone. Now, when the right person comes along, you'll know it. People who find themselves in a broken relationship, a marriage or some other long-term relationship that was like a marriage. They want to get through the aftermath and find a new, better, more suitable partner, fearing that if they don't, then they're going to suffer loneliness. They can't imagine living a fulfilling and flourishing life as a single person. Are there advantages to being married? Of course, right? In Paul's estimation, being in a committed marriage before the Lord, one that potentially may even bring the gift of children into the world. It's a beautiful calling. But living your life out in full dedication to the Lord as a single person is not only as worthy of a calling. Paul gives the opinion that from his point of view, it may even be better. The reason is because, well, before Christ, marriage was this necessary pathway to a life that was considered to be blessed and flourishing, right? For men, it was about bringing children into the world, especially male children, uh, who could keep your ancestral line going and provide a means for passing property on down to the next generation. Uh, for women, it was about financial and social security. It was a sign of God's blessing to bring children into the world. So what Paul says is, now that Christ has come, and now that we have entered into this kingdom of Christ, domain of living our lives, that's all changed. Now, both choices are yours. Just know that your status as a married person or as a single person is irrelevant when it comes to the way that God feels about you. What is important is that whatever state you are in, keeping God's commands is what matters. This has relevance for all kinds of situations that we may find ourselves in. Um, you know, when we talk about things like, you know, how does, um, how does a gay person, right, who is exclusively attracted to people of the opposite sex, uh, but that also holds a historically Christian view of marriage and sees that marriage is for a man and a woman exclusively, and, um, and that doesn't seem like, the pathway forward in their lives. Like, uh, can we expect for that person to still be able to flourish and to experience full 
the full scope of what it means to be human, I would say absolutely yes. There have been some Christian men and women who have chosen to do things like enter into um, what's called um, um, uh, mixed orientation relationships, where they get into a marriage relationship with somebody of the opposite sex that is not a person that they are physically and primarily attracted to. And a lot of them will testify to the beauty of that relationship that instead of being built largely on physical and erotic attraction, it's built on something far more beautiful. Now, that's not for everybody. A lot of others, they just say, you know, they commit themselves to living celibate, single before God, give their whole life in radical obedience to him. Again, for many of them, this is the way they have decided what it means for me to keep God's commands in the state that I'm in. Um, the person whose marriage didn't turn out the way they'd hoped. Like, what does this person do with that? What does this person do with all those broken pieces? I, 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 the, I know that the, the gut reaction to that is, well, find another person. <laughs> find another partner, right? Don't, don't subject yourself to the rest of your future as a lonely single person. Again, we need to just, we need to somehow be freed from that lack of imagination that can't see how a single person could live a flourishing and full life. There are all kinds of situations where we can find ourselves living with and feeling this unmet desire. But remember what we learned last week. What we learned last week is the fact that we have a desire even a really strong desire, even one that feels so innate and natural to us that it must be right for us to act on it. It doesn't mean that we should act on that desire. And remember that along with that, this thing called unmet desires that every single one of us are going to experience in our lives, those unmet desires do not need to be fed every single time. They do not need to be pacified every single time. Instead, those unmet desires have an uncanny way of drawing us closer to Christ. When I, have, when I experience unmet desire, I have the option of going and satisfying that desire with something less than what God has prescribed as ideal or good for me. Or I can take that unmet desire and I can bring it into the bosom of my Savior and Lord Jesus. And there I can hold it, even with the broken heart, even with the difficult and trying circumstances, and know that Jesus, our creator and our greatest lover, will be our ultimate fulfillment. Keeping God's commands is what matters. So I ask you this morning, what is it that God is calling you to keep today?